0: I'm so glad I'm not that kind of person. What we do is we kind of act and then we think and then we act and then we think some more. And if it goes badly, we think some more and then we act. And that's what we should be doing when this patient comes in. So I just want you to mirror a picture for yourself right now. A ambulance comes in, drops off a dialysis patient, blood pressure 70. What are you going to do? Just think about it for a second. Do you care about the serum porcelain level or any of that other (laughs) crap? No, in that first five minutes, you've already done everything that you need to do and you don't even need it to be at this stupid lecture. But stop for a second and go, okay, now I've fixed the patient, I should probably go back and think about the differential diagnosis, right? Because you've already fixed them, you've already put the lines in, you've given them fluids and you've like fixed the problem. But here is sort of the short differential, you can think of a much wider differential of uh, what might be wrong with this patient who is hypotensive from the dialysis suite. They could be bleeding, they could have sepsis, they might have tamponade, they might have hypokalemia, and right down the bottom they might have this dialysis hypotensive syndrome, which we're going to talk a little bit about at the end. So let's go through these things very quickly because when you come to AEM and talk, it's different than any other course. The people who are at this conference are always way more sophisticated than anywhere else, so you can cut all the crap. So they're bleeding. Here's my simplified way of thinking about it. There's only two types of bleeding in the dialysis patient. There's the external bleeding. Oh, shit, what am I going to do? I'm in charge of my hand bike here. What am I going to do with this patient? And then there's internal bleeding. So the external bleeding, where do they bleed from? They've got these big shunts and how many people have seen that shunt hit the ceiling? We've all seen that. It scares the crap out of you. I remember as an intern in Australia, one of my first shifts, this person came in and their shunt was bleeding and the paramedic took the thing off and it hit the roof and I started screaming like a little girl, like, what do we do? And the paramedic said, I'll show you. (laughs) Now go get somebody who knows what the hell they're doing.
1: <laughs>
0: so it's very simple. External bleeding is very simple. Why do they bleed? You're accessing this site all the time and sometimes they get a little nidus of infection and they go home and that little nidus eats away the clock and boom, at home. And the paramedics come and put the thumb on it. Most of the time that's all you need to do. Every now and then it's much bigger than that and you can't stop it and you have to put a stitch in it. But my only summary point here is don't put a stitch in it unless you absolutely have to. They really are a pain in the butt getting these shunts in these patients. It's a big part of their life to get that shunt revision and they go from one arm to the other arm. They're having to have them in their legs and other places. So save the shunt as much as you can. If putting pressure on it is enough, just put pressure on it for 10 minutes and then maybe even put a little dermal bond over the top and then maybe put a pressure dressing on come back half an hour later, save the shunt. But if you have to, if they're bleeding to death, or as one of the patients happened at our place, they were slicing a uh, tomato or something like that, and stuffed the thing through their shunt, you couldn't put your finger on that one. That one (laughs) needed more of a stitching. So if you have to stitch it, you stitch it, but try and save these as much as possible. Then the other type of bleeding is internal bleeding. And they get lots of different reasons for internal bleeding, but you have to quickly ask yourself, where are they bleeding from, how bad are they bleeding, and can I reverse it? So why do dialysis patients bleed? Why do they bleed? Because they do have a tendency to bleed a lot, which is a bit of a pain in the butt. They bleed because they've got low platelets, because they've got uh, suppression because of their uh, uremia. They bleed because their platelets don't work. The platelets that they do have that are being produced Uh, Not working very well because of the uremia and they bleed because of other things like heparin and other stuff That we do to them or that's done in the dialysis suite. So we have to reverse that bleeding. So again Let's do the trick. So this patient comes in Let's say they're having a big-time GI bleed Ivo 2 monitor advanced air equipment to the bedside. I put in a line. I get some fluids going here some blood Thank you very much, but what else we all do that? That's we can do that What else do you do for this bleeding dialysis patient? Let's say they got a GI bleed or an intracranial bleed What else can you do for them? Can you think about it? There's a couple of other agents and other things to do. Here are some of the things you would do. You might be able to reverse their heparin if they just came from the dialysis suite. You might be able to give them DDAVP, transamic acid. Um, you might give them estrogen and you might just give them plain old blood. So let's go through these. First of all, heparin. When they go to the dialysis suite, they give them a big bolus of heparin. This can make them bleed, but it also stops them bleeding as the blood goes through the plastic machine, which wants to clot. So they often get big doses of heparin. They tried for a while to put the heparin in one arm and as the blood was coming out the other, to put the protamine in the other arm so they could reverse it, but they found that that produced lots of clots. So if they've just come from the dialysis suite and they're exsanguinating, you might want to think about reversing their heparin. Heparin has a pretty short half-life, so most of the time it's not a big deal. Um, But if you need to reverse it, they talk about this thing, which I don't really understand, which is 100 units for every active unit of heparin. So you just say, Uh, You call the dialysis suite or sometimes on the paperwork, we gave them a bolus of 10,000 units, you do the math and you just reverse them. And if you overdo it, it's fine. The only things to know about heparin is that you've got to be a little bit careful. When you give uh, the protamine, they can have histamine reactions, they can even have anaphylaxis reactions, and all that is made a little less if you give it slowly. So that's all I want to know about uh, protamine, except for who the hell came up with this? You know where it comes from, right? Salmon's semen? So who thought of this, the patients got bleeding from heparin and thought, hang on a second, I got some salmon jizz in the fridge here. Let me just <laughs> let me see if that works, to reverse that. Who was the genius that came up with that? So that's protamine. It's not a big deal most of the time. It's got a short half life. But DDAVP is, if you remember nothing else, and you probably will, this is what you should remember from this talk. When a dialysis patient comes in with bleeding, generalised bleeding, and I want to reverse it, DDAVP is the right drug. So DDAVP works by releasing von Willebrand factor from the endothelium. That von Willebrand factor makes all the platelets want to stick together more. There's not many platelets there a lot of time when the platelets aren't working very well. This will give them two to five times their normal amount of von Willebrand and it really makes them clot uh, a lot better. It works in about an hour, even 30 minutes. So give them some DDAVP and, and you can repeat it. You can give it intranasally, you can give it IV. So if you remember nothing else, remember dialysis patient, bleeding, DDAVP, very safe drug, IV, intranasal, works great, tastes great, less filling. Then there's this one, trans, I won't say trans, but it's trans acid. This is from the big crash trial. It's an anti fibrinolytic so if they get a clot and you put this stuff on there, it stops their clot breaking up again. So this is another thing to try. I don't know the dose, you'd have to look it up. You're never gonna remember the dose because we don't use it enough. But in the big crash trials in the trauma patients, they found that if we gave this, they had less bleeding. It also works in renal failure patients. So, step one, reverse the heparin with protamine. Step two is give them DDABP. Step three is think about using trans acid. You can also use estrogen in the doses you would give a woman who's bleeding. Again, you're going to look it up because you're not going to remember it. So, a high dose of estrogen might work. And then sometimes just blood alone, they say, can help... Uh, the platelets work better but we know in our experience with the citrate and all the other stuff what you gain is what you lose. So you give them blood if they need blood for other reasons but I don't think you need to give them blood to help them clot. Probably doesn't really work. So we've done the bleeding right? So they're hypotensive dialysis patients, they come in and they're bleeding and ibo 2 monitor, advance their equipment to the bedside, give them blood, uh, do all that stuff, protamine, DDAVP, uh, transic acid, oestrogen, uh, maybe some blood. What's next on our differential diagnosis? Well Think about the pericardium. If you don't think about the pericardium, you'll forget to look. If you're like me, if you train just as ultrasound was coming in, it's not part of what you do instantaneously. Our residents, they think, they don't think airway breathing circulation, they think ultrasound, airway breathing circulation. But for the rest of us, we've got to think pericardium. About 50% of patients who are on hemodialysis chronically have a pericardial effusion and they can bleed into that pericardial effusion. Or that pericardial effusion can get worse fairly quickly because they have chronic pericarditis. So if somebody comes in on dialysis and they're hypotensive, you've got to think IVO2 monitor, advanced to at the bedside, are they bleeding? And i better look at their pericardium because they could have pericardial tamponade. If they have pericardial tamponade, then you know what to do, fix it. Most of the time it's just a serous pericardial tamponade. But what is actually the first step? Somebody is hypotensive, dying, blood pressure 60, put the ultrasound on, pericardial tamponade, what is actually your first step? Give them fluid, fill up the tank, increase their venous return, that's all you need to do for a lot of these patients and then you can think about um, tapping it later. So we did the bleeding, we looked in the pericardium, now what? What else could be producing hypotension in this patient in front of you who just is driving away from the ballast of sweep? Well obviously a big one is sepsis, right? This is really common. We are taking needles, licking them, putting them on the floor, wiping them on their arms and shoving them. They get septic all the time. If they've got plastic in them, that's how they're getting their dialysis. They're getting septic all the time. So we had a huge outbreak um, in our county with this. So it happens all the time. But for most emergency physicians, a hypotensive patient, it is brainstem reflex. IVO2 monitor, advanced their equipment to the bedside. Draw some blood cultures, give some antibiotics, give some more fluids. It's just what you do. So there's really nothing magic here. But just remember when you give them that antimicrobial coverage, you just expand it out. They get lots of MRSA and they get lots of gram negatives as well. They get lots of pseudomonas. So have a broad sort of spectrum of antibiotics you give these people. And in terms of the fluids, how much fluid do you give? Normally in a septic patient, what would you do? If we listen to Scott Weingart and some of the other critical care experts, they say you're pissing in the wind until you're giving two litres. The first bolus is two litres in a septic shock patient. In these patients... Don't be afraid of fluids, but don't do two litres and then walk out of the room and go do something else because you really can overload them. So give them 250 mils. Hi, Mr. Smith, how are you going? Check that blood pressure again. Give them another 250 mils, rectal exam, whatever else. You another. So just sneak up on them a little bit more than you would. But if you need to give them lots of fluid, that's fine. If they're vasodilated, that's fine. If you overdose them with fluid, it's not a problem. We can fix that. We can use vasodilators and other stuff to fix them. But just sneak up on a little bit. The real question I had before I did this... Uh, was which person should I pull the line out? If they've got some plastic in, subclavian, a semi-permanent, permanent permanent line, uh, plastic that I can take out, should I take it out? And the summary of that is, if they're septic and dying, if they've got septic shock, take it out. Everybody else, there's some uh, room for discussion. So lots of literature on this. four-day conferences on what to do with the dialysis patient who's got an infection in their life. Do you want to go to that conference? God, help me. So you can do things like put antibiotics through a peripheral line and just keep it in. You can do this thing called locking, which is they put the antibiotics through the infected line and then close it off and put some heparin in there as well and then see what happens. They can take that line out over a wire and put a new one in, or they can just pull it out. So for us, the answer is if they're septic and dying, as much as you want to save these lines, even these plastic lines that they have in them, as much as you want to save them, um, it's, you get no style points if the person's dead and you save the line. But I saved the line. Look at it, it's perfect. And they're dead. But if there's a chance to save it, then call and say, look, they're, they're not in septic shock, they're a little bit sick, I've given them the antibiotics, and then work with uh, the nephrologist about what they want to do. If the person's clearly trending down and getting worse, just clean and jerk that puppy out of it. Unfortunately, it's not so simple as it seems because sometimes they just had it put in say a week ago, just like any central line, you go in there and you pull it out. Sometimes they're tunneled. So we never used to be able to do this until recently, but they have a tunneled subcutaneous port that is big enough now that they can do dialysis through. So it might be a tunnel port, which is a little bit harder to pull out. So you may not be able to clean and jerk it. You may have to pull, get somebody else to do it. Here is a picture of a uh, young lady who's got one of these subcutaneous ports. So it's just a subclavian and then they pull it out through the skin and then they can access through a subcutaneous port. If you're by yourself, if you're in podunk nowhere, then you can actually pull these out. You just do a nick over the uh, skin. There's a little subcutaneous port there and you sort of dissect around it. They're usually not stitched in, but if they're stitched in, you'll feel it, and you can pull it, and then you pull this thing out. And where do you put pressure when you pull one of these giant harpoon-like things out of them? Do you put the pressure over here where it went through the skin? That'll work for the skin bleeding but they're gonna die because that's where the big vessel is. So remember to put your pressure over where they went into the subclavian vessel and hold it for about 10 minutes after you pull one of these bad boys out. So, they're septic, they're dying, clean and jerk that thing. If they're not septic and dying, try and save it. There's lots of literature that says you can save a lot of these, but if they're clearly trending down, they're hypotensive and dying, you've gotta pull this thing out, all right? So here's what we've done so far. We've fixed the bleeding. DDAVP is what we're gonna remember. We looked at the pericardium, and if there's a big pericardial effusion, I'll give them fluids first, and then I'll think about draining that pericardium. We treated them for sepsis, and I cleaned and jerked that line if they're really sick. If they're sick and dying, I'm just going to pull the damn thing out. And then uh, what else can we do? What else could be causing this hypotension in this patient? Any other ideas? There's a million things, but I don't care about a million things because I'm a simple man. The big masquerader here is syphilis.
1: Thank you, you're still
0: <laughs> no, No, It's syphilis. Hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia is the great masquerader. So hyperkalemia, and I say that because it produces hypotension, it produces bradycardia, it produces a little thing called death. Hyperkalemia is bad. So here's a number of different EKGs. And all I wanted to say about this was that you were sold a bill of goods and I was sold a bill of goods. And I'm really angry about the fact that I was taught that there is this stepwise progression of hyperkalemic changes. So as your potassium goes up, then your P-wave starts to go away and then your T-wave gets bigger and then you get a widening of your QRS, wrist, and then you turn into a side wave and then you die and that's absolutely bullshit. That's not how it happens. And anybody who's practiced for a while knows that's not how it happens. You can go from normal sinus rhythm to asystole. Thank you very much. Um, but it's in every textbook and they make it sound like there is this stepwise progression but it just doesn't happen that way. We had an unfortunate scenario a couple of years ago where one of our really good residents saw this renal failure patient and um, looked at the EKG and the EKG was normal. But then the potassium came back and it said 8.5 and they looked back at the EKG and said "But the EKG is normal and everybody knows that you don't arrest from hypoclemia unless you have EKG changes. Because they were taught by us that the best predictor of death from hyperkalemia is the EKG, not the serum level. So they put them on a chair and went to see the next patient and then thankfully the patient was nice enough when they went into the asystole to fall off the chair and make a loud noise. Otherwise they just would sort have of sat there quietly and died instead they died loudly, which was good. <laughs> and I really do suggest that if you're going to die, do it loudly so we can come home. So although it is true that the best predictor of bad arrhythmias and death, EKG is better than serum level, don't be fooled. You can have a pretty normal looking EKG and then drop dead. It's also true that patients who are chronically hyperclinic get used to it. And so they can have levels of 6.5 and 7 and not do too badly. But don't extend that too far, as has happened again in our place. A 9, I don't care whether you're a frog or you're from another planet, 9 is too high. Whether you're at 8, it's too high. I'm going to fix that right now. So we will not get too excited about you know, potassiums of 6, 6.5, but when you get over six point five, I don't care where you live. Oh, they live high, at the internal medicine room. Oh, they probably live there. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> fix it. It's 9. Fix it. And do it fast. So if they come in and they're really sick and they're wide, complex, and they're dying, what do we do to fix it right now? <coughs> I mean, this is basic, but let's just go. What are we going to do to fix it? So you can give them, what's the first thing you do to save their life? They're about to die. Calcium is the thing that fixes them right now. That's the, the stabilizer. And then you can dip around with all the other stuff. You can give them bicarbon, you can give them inhaled albuterol and you can give them K-exalate rectally which we've just found out doesn't work but it makes you feel better and gives the nurses something to do. You can do all that stuff but make sure that you give them the calcium. And does it matter which calcium? People will you know scream at you if you give the wrong. It doesn't matter. They're dying. Give them calcium. You know, give them a glass and milk. give them some <laughs> Here's another pearl that you should remember about the electrolyte abnormalities. I'm pretty sure I made this up myself, or at least I stole it and I can't remember from whom. If the person is in the ambulance headed to the dialysis suite and they arrest, what's the problem? Hyperkalemia. If they're leaving the dialysis suite going home and they arrest, what's the problem? Hypokalemia. It's very, I'm a simple man, but that's how it works. They haven't had their dialysis, their potassium is really high. They're dying. If they're leaving the dialysis suite, it's almost never hypercleaner is the problem if they're leaving the dialysis suite. It's because somebody screwed up the dialysate. They did it too long. There was a a case report where people were coming in with sodiums of 100 and potassiums of 0 because the bags of dialysate that they were using, their special machine was all screwed up. And uh, there were people coming out of the dialysis suite all afternoon and going straight to the ER dead. And finally, the ER called the dialysis suite and said, This is three for the day. (laughs) Nice work. What the hell is going on there? So just keep that in mind. Now finally, we've gone through the list. We've done sepsis, we've done bleeding, we've done the the pericardium, uh, we've thought about the potassium, and that's all I want to talk about. But we have to say something about the dialysis hypotension syndrome. Dialysis hypotension syndrome is, again, something that the nephrologist will spend weeks discussing and talking about and it's a big deal. I just want to, to list this up for you. Here are the things that can cause dialysis hypotension syndrome. It's really a problem from them. It can be rapid fluid removal in an attempt to attain dry weight. Uh, inaccurate determination of the true autonomic dysfunction. Uh, decreased cardiac reserve. Use of acetate rather than bicarb. Eating while you're actually in the dialysis machine. Uh, intake of antihypertensive medications. Use of a aloe so. Who gives a crap about any of these? I don't care. So what do I need to know about this? Here's the beauty of emergency medicine. Person comes in hypotensive. IVO2 monitor advanced air equipment at the bedside. Give them 250 mL of fluid, their blood pressure is too low. Give them another 250 mL of fluid, their blood pressure is too low. Check and make sure they're not bleeding. Uh, reverse them if they are bleeding with DDAVP and other agents. Uh, look for sepsis and start treating for sepsis. Give them some more fluid, get their blood pressure up. Do all this, check the pericardium, is there fluid around that pericardium? No, they're good. And at the end of all that, and you're two hours in, and it turns out their blood pressure comes back and they look great and everything is negative, What's the diagnosis? Dialysis disequilibrium syndrome. Thank you very much, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. You don't care about it. The nephrologist who comes in the next morning with a cup of coffee after you've done everything and ruled out everything bad will say, those stupid ER docs, this was clearly just another case of dialysis disequilibrium syndrome and they didn't need to do all that work up and uh, look after that patient the way they did. If they just had left them alone and give them a drink of water, they would have done fine. And I say to you, sir, lick me. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a diagnosis of exclusion if they've come from uh, getting dialysis and they're hypotensive you're the real doctor they're the fake doctor be a real doctor make sure there's nothing bad going on when the fake doctor comes they can say what the problem is now this is different from dialysis disequilibrium syndrome which is a whole another talk which is they go to the dialysis suite and they come out goofy that's because they have all these fluid shifts and they've got some cerebral edema but the talk is exactly the same talk Rule out sepsis, rule out meningitis, rule out subdural, go down the list. And then the next day when the person wakes up and fine and all the CT scans and everything is negative, it's called dialysis disequilibrium syndrome. It's exactly the same scenario. Rule out the bad stuff, then this will be the diagnosis. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I do not like to talk for 30 minutes. I don't like to talk for 10 minutes. I'm sorry I'm over time. This is, I think I'm 15 minutes in right now. Almost. Think bleeding. If you remember nothing else, you can only remember one thing out of all these lectures you go to if you remember one thing from every single lecture you've done great. Renal failure patient, bleeding, DDABP. Forget everything else I've said. Um, Think sepsis, but you already think sepsis. We're already really good at that, so just keep treating the sepsis. Um, Think tamponade. For me, I have to actually remind myself, put that, get the ultrasound machine, put it on their chest, make sure this person isn't tamponading. If they are, first step fluid, If that doesn't work, now I'll think about sticking a needle in and sucking that stuff out. Um, Think potassium. Even if their EKG is pretty normal, if they're sick, if they're bradycardic, if they're dying, if they're hypotensive, just give them some calcium. And it's amazing how many times that they just come back to life. It's good stuff. And think the dialysis hypotension syndrome last. It is the rule-out diagnosis. The other way you can get into trouble is because some of these patients live with very low blood pressure. Most of the time they live in really high blood pressures. Our problem is getting their damn pressure down. But some of these patients have low blood pressure. But again, that's a diagnosis of exclusion. After you've done your stuff, and you've worked out you know, all the bad things that it could have been, then you can say dialysis disc, equilibrium syndrome, and then somebody gives you a chart this big, and it turns out their blood pressure is always 80. Oh, that's probably the cause of their blood pressure today at 80, because it's always 80. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it has been my pleasure, thank you for listening. Go forth and multiply. So, so is there anybody in the audience that has a question? No, any? there's no, no. questions because I don't know it. That's it. I will take No, If you come to the microphone so everyone can hear your question, that would be better. If I did my job, there wouldn't be any questions, sir. <laughs> so
1: would you sometimes post by the case, half hour then it's for a hype ruleinic to come back and then reject it. So it becomes like an hour, an hour and a half to get to half and back. Do you feel
0: that the downside is just giving calcium and just seeing what happens while you're doing everything else? Now if they're if they're sick, so the question is if they if person comes in sick and their potassium is going to take half an hour to get back, just give them the calcium. Isn't it really at that point there's no downside. Just do it. Just give give 'em an amp of calcium uh, gluconate. If there's any evidence that there's hyperkalemia, then I give one and then I'll give another one. Uh, if you do a venous gas, a lot of us have venous gas. You can get that back in five minutes. And there's also the bedside ones. So that's my take. If they're sick and they're trying to die, no patient shall die without an amp of calcium on board. Nothing else? Yes? Looks oh, like
1: there's in, in the sepsis patient, hungry, <coughs> you know, they typically live in a little blood pressure. What do you do about it uh, when their map is at 65, but their lactate is normal? they look like they're confused.
0: Do I look like a critical care doctor you? <laughs> I don't know. Fill up the tank as much as you can without fluid overloading. That's true in uh, non-septic patients as it is in... I mean, uh, non-dialysis patients as in uh, dialysis patients. Make sure the tank is full as your job. And you do that by a variety of clinical things, as well as if you want to check their you know, central venous pressure and stuff. But mostly I just I try and fill up the tank. I don't know what they're right... Uh, Map numbers are on these people, particularly like you say, the ones that live low. Maybe I can never get their mean arterial pressure up above 65. I just don't know. So some of them really do live in these sort of 80 90 range, so you probably can't get them up there. But we'll ask somebody smart, Scott Weingart, or somebody who knows something. So the question is why are we pulling the lines if they're septic and bacteremic? It's because the, on the end of those catheters or through the catheters or right where the catheter is going into the vessel, they get colonized and you can give them, it's like little micro abscesses. Um, you can give them lots of antibiotics, but it's not fixing the problem. They'll still, in lots of cases, replicate, continue to produce gram-negative badness. And so if they're really sick, the idea is just pull it out. You haven't got time. You might be able to get in front of it and that's why you do these other um, interventions when they're not so sick you might be able to get in front of with antibiotics and fluids and time and get that penetration in there but if they're sick and dying you don't have the 12 hours 24 hours uh, three days for that antimicrobial to work you need it to work now so you just pull that damn thing out the thing that worries me about that if you've seen some of the echoes ask how many ultrasound people sometimes the clots hanging off the end of these things are huge guess where that thing goes when you pull it out it doesn't come off with the capitalist. So that <laughs> thing showers downstream. So sometimes, when you pull these things out, there as described, as you pull it out, ten minutes later they have this huge gram negative as so They break up this clot with all the bugs in it. Shit happens. More fluids. <laughs> uh, other
1: than the baseline pressure being eighty, is there any situation that you send those people home when they come in hypotensive? Would, would you send any of those people home after your workout?
0: Um, So the question is, would you send any of these hypotensive patients home? If there's any question, the answer is no, since it's not worth it. But if the person comes in and they're fine, and maybe they twisted their ankle as they were leaving the dialysis suite and some doctor did their pressure, and everything on their chart shows that their pressure has always been 80, and you can't find anything, then I can see a scenario where it's going to happen. But if somebody comes in via ambulance, sent from the dialysis suite for hypotension, it would take very large ovaries for me to send them home. At least I'd want to say, I really think they look pretty good. I'd like to watch them for you know, more than four or five hours. Maybe I'll stick them in an observation unit for 12, but I can see scenarios where it really is nothing. But, uh, you know, that makes me a bit anxious. Over dialysis? Absolutely. And that's part of that uh, dialysis disequilibrium syndrome, Well, the dialysis hypotension syndrome. Just overdialyzing them can produce Hypotension, but that's, for us, a diagnosis of exclusion. Most of the dialysis places are really good at recognising this and treating it themselves. Not all of them. I know I'm sure you probably live near a dialysis suite where their first reaction to everything is sent to the ear. And 90% of the stuff they send to us, the answer is dialysis which fricking kills you. (laughs) But in this one, they're generally, they're pretty good and they um, fluid bolus them. They actually even give them some uh, carnitine and they mix up some other stuff because usually this is a chronic problem that it certainly can happen just out of the blue, but it's often a problem that every time this person has dialysis. So generally they're pretty good at it. But Jeff, have know your dialysis groups. Uh, There was one in LA that was particularly profitable um, but also very bad. So every time anything happened, they just sent them off. And the answer was, damn you, I have to do the septic workup and all this stuff. But they really just needed a better nephrologist dialysis center that would fluid load them, give them some carnitine, and this other stuff that they do to give them some blood pressure. The last question. Uh, did you read anything on, like, steel syndrome in the patients who get, like, like, on one side? They get taken out and they get like
1: scarring of the, the subclavian and then they go to the other side and they get dialyzed and they
0: also yeah. go to pressure as well. Yeah, there's a series of these uh, steel syndromes that can occur because you're accessing their central circulation, you're pulling it out, you're then getting scarring and uh, there are steel syndromes that can occur from the dialysis. They can even get steel syndromes from eating. Um, as they have a big meal and they shunt blood to their gut, these people can collapse from that. It's really... And in dialysis suites, it's a, I didn't realize this. It's a giant no-no to eat during dialysis because this can produce profound hypotension uh, during dialysis, as they shunt blood to their mesentery and away from the dialysis machine and all this other crap that I don't really understand. So, these steel syndromes are real, and there seems the more you access, the more likely you are to have it. Um, one last thing I'll tell you is that when somebody comes in arrest, it's easy when we know that they're on dialysis, but We've had patients come in and we teach our residents and we try and remember ourselves, you know, IVO2 monitor events if are coming the person's really sick, check for dialysis shunts. But they also shunt them down here too. And so it's really easy, they've got their pants on and you're 10, 15 minutes in and then you finally pull their pants down as they're dying and you realise they've got a huge graft here and they're dying from hyperkalemia. So when you check for shunts, check everywhere. Feel subcutaneously, feel their legs because these shunts, they'll put them anywhere. Buttocks, breasts, I don't know, they'll put them anywhere. All right, thanks very much uh, for listening you
1: guys.
0: <laughs> I actually had one thought for everybody as you're leaving, which is how many, of, just think to yourself, how many of you work in a system where you could get access to a patient's normal vital signs in a minute or less so that you really know what you're dealing with when somebody comes in with abnormal vitals?